Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, everybody. How about a little, another little trip to the memory hall? The door opened this past week when irregulars, let's call them, in Syria and Iraq, putatively representatives of Iran, attacked facilities and personnel of the United States in Syria and Iraq. Syria, you know, it's a mess. What are you going to do? Call Assad. But Iraq is the door to this week's trip down the memory hole. As I said, Iraq was the locale of some local militia irregulars who reportedly take orders from Iran. Anybody looking at that situation from the standpoint of 30 years ago might be a bit puzzled. In the 1980s, in the entirety of the 1980s, Iran and Iraq were at war with each other. There were religious differences. There were commercial differences. There were just differences in the last initial of their names. But it was a nasty little war, and it kept both of them pretty busy. What happened between then and now to bring at least some Iraqis over to the side of Iran? Oh, look, here's this little door in the side of the memory hole, and it leads to 2003, when the United States declared war on Iraq. A nice little war we had, based on totally fallacious intelligence, best kind, most available kind. And uh, I seem to remember, and I think accurately, that uh, shortly after U.S. troops ended our war in Iraq and the troops withdrew, new troops entered Iraq from Iran. Yes, I too think that George W. Bush is a likely candidate for honorary Ayatollah. You too? Hello, welcome to the show. of our friend the Adam. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for your listening pleasure, the operator of the tsunami hit nuclear plant in Fuk, Fukushima, Japan, has announced a delay, always a good word where nuclear is concerned, a delay of several more months before launching a test to remove melted fuel debris from inside one of the reactors. A delay before launching a test 
That's not a delay before removing the debris. They cited problems clearing the way for a robotic arm. Well, I know people who have one of those. The debris cleanup initially was supposed to be started by 2021, says the Associated Press, but it's been plagued with delays, underscoring the difficulty of recovering from the plant's meltdown after the quake and the tsunami and the thing. The disasters destroyed the Fuk Daiichi nuclear plant's power supply and cooling systems, as you may recall, causing three reactors to melt down and massive amounts of fatally radioactive melted nuclear fuel remain inside, hopefully, to this day. The government and TEPCO, the company, initially committed to start removing the melted fuel from inside one of the three damaged reactors within 10 years of the disaster. In 2010, I'm sorry, 2019, the government and TEPCO decided to start removing melted fuel debris by the end of 2021 from the number two reactor. That would have been my choice too, of course. That uh, happened after a remote-controlled robot successfully clipped and lifted a granule of melted fuel during an internal probe. That happened when I had an internal probe. But the coronavirus pandemic delayed development of the robotic arm. The plan was pushed to 2022. Then glitches with the arm repeatedly have delayed the project since then. Now, TEPCO officials have pushed back the planned start from March of this year to October, from Mardi Gras to Halloween. TEPCO officials said the inside of a planned entryway for the robotic arm is filled with deposits to be uh, believed to be melted equipment, cables, and other debris from the meltdown. Their harder-than-expected removal has delayed the plan. TEPCO is now considering using a slimmer telescope-shaped kind of robot to start the debris removal. About 880 tons of highly radioactive melted nuclear fuel remain inside the three damaged reactors. Critics say the 30 to 40-year cleanup target set by the government and TEPCO is overly optimistic. The damage in each reactor is different. Plans need to be formed to accommodate each of their distinct conditions. TEPCO has previously tried sending robots inside each of the three reactors, but got hindered by debris. That's always my excuse. I'm sorry I'm late. I was hindered by debris. High radiation as well, and inability to navigate them, the robots, through the rubble. They were able to gather some data in recent years. Getting more details about the melted fuel debris from inside the reactors is crucial for their decommissioning. TEPCO plans to deploy four mini drones and a snake-shaped remote-controlled robot into the number one reactor's primary containment vessel this month to capture images from the areas where robots have not reached previously. And you can bet the robots are abashed about that. Yeah, they have feelings. TEPCO also announced plans to release 54,000 tons of the treated radioactive wastewater in seven rounds of releasings from April to March of next year as part of the ongoing discharge plan. Hot fish, anybody? And also 
more news of our friend the atom you may remember speaking of memory holes shortly after mr putin ordered the invasion of iraq uh, two years ago the uh, united states banned all imports of russian oil liquefied natural gas and coal not all energy supplies were included in the sanctions nor in those of the european allies on the contrary according to the financial times western nations have taken care not to interrupt the flow of raw materials and services from russia's state-owned nuclear giant rosatom and its subsidiary denex moscow's invasion exposed many vulnerabilities in u.s and european energy supplies not least in the nuclear sector where more than a fifth of the enriched uranium fuel required to power u.s and europeans nuclear fleets they are nuclear plants which don't go in the sea their fleets on land comes from russia the u.s was the only country in the world to privatize its sensitive dual-use nuclear technology sector leaving it exposed then russia's full-scale invasion of ukraine turned the whole world of nuclear energy on its head prompting washington to reboot the industry after lobbying washington against the imposition of sanctions the u.s nuke industry has now committed to ending reliance on fuel enrichment and conversion services from russia phasing them out will take years and congress is mulling over legislation to ban imports from rosatom and tenex last month the u.s joined 21 countries your uk your france your japan among others in pledging to triple nuclear capacity by 2050 the u.s's plans for its domestic industry have attracted support from france canada japan and the uk they together have pledged 4.2 billion to boost enrichment and conversion capacity elon's got that on him they plan those countries to build new nuclear reactors and exploring deployment of small modular reactors your smrs advocates contend they are safer and more efficient than existing technology how can they be safer than new oh i see demand for uranium and nuclear fuel has also surged because the u.s uk and several other western nations have extended the lifetimes of existing nuclear reactors how come they can't extend mine even as china and russia race to build new units that uh, turnaround in sentiment has sparked a rebound in uranium prices they have tripled in the last three years success according to analysts is not guaranteed they note that rising costs high interest rates and project delays have caused a sharp fall in support for nuclear startups critics also contend the sheer expense of nuclear infrastructure the industry's poor record of cost overruns and safety concerns mean public money would be better spent rolling out renewable energy the industry is fighting a public relations battle to convince people that it can play a role in mitigating carbon emissions says edwin lyman 
director of nuclear safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, he says, but the fundamentals haven't really changed. Nuclear power is more expensive than most other forms of electricity. U.S. nuclear plants now import most of the uranium they use, sourcing almost half of the supplies from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. The uh, process of converting ore into gas and then enriching the presence of the uranium-235 isotope to about 5%, so the fission process can happen, is even more specialized. Only two major Western suppliers of enrichment services, a French company and a UK, German, and Dutch consortium leaving Russia as a dominant player almost half the world's commercial capacity. Even more dependent is the European Union. Tenex, one of the two Russian companies involved in this business, has a monopoly control of the market for high-assay, low-enriched uranium, HALU, which is more powerful than standard nuclear fuel, more powerful than standard nuclear fuel and used in SMR reactors, those small modular reactors. It's already causing problems for some U.S. projects. Terrapara Power, a company founded by Bill Gates, announced a two-year delay to construction of a planned new reactor in Wyoming, citing fuel constraints. The Biden administration is pursuing a three-pronged strategy to rebuild the enrichment and conversion supply chain. One, to subsidize domestic industry. Two, enlist international partners in a friend-shoring strategy. That's not offshoring and not onshoring. It's friend-shoring. That's their word. And impose sanctions on Russian imports to protect taxpayer investments. News of our friend, the Atom. And now, the Apologies of the Week. So sorry. Oh, you know this one was coming. A top Boeing executive has apologized for the problems highlighted by the mid-flight blowout of a door plug on an Alaskan Airlines flight. At the same time, two airlines have begun returning the troubled 737 MAX 9 planes to service. The comments from Stan Deal, CEO of Boeing's commercial plane unit, came three weeks after that door plug on an Alaska flight blew out in midair, focusing intense scrutiny on the huge aviation manufacturer and forcing the grounding of 171 planes for safety checks. Alaska Air, a major user of the model, began returning its MAX 9 planes to service and United Airlines followed. Quote, our long-term focus is on improving our quality so we can regain the confidence of our customers, our regulation, our regulator, sorry, and the flying public, Boeing's deal wrote in a note to staff. Frankly, we have disappointed and let them down. We are deeply sorry. Have you ever heard of a um, medium, a media entity called The Messenger? Of course not. That's why it suddenly shut down and fired all of its remaining staff after a year of 
Yeah, the year of that. Owner Jimmy Finkelstein is now accused of violating the law for canning 300 employees effective immediately with no notice, no severance, and no health care. Yes, it's less than a year after it launched with high ambitions of being an editorial force in the digital landscape. Finkelstein said in a memo, a memo to staffers, quote, over the past few weeks, literally until earlier today, we exhausted every option available and have endeavored to raise sufficient capital to reach profitability. Since uh, sales won't do it, <laughs> he didn't say that. Unfortunately, we've been unable to do so, which is why we haven't shared the news with you until now. This is truly the last thing I wanted, and I am deeply sorry. He cited economic headwinds that have, quote, left many media companies fighting for survival. Unfortunately, as a new company, we encountered even more significant challenges than others and could not survive those headwinds. Next time, I'll look for some tailwinds. No, he didn't say that. He probably should have. The state of South Dakota has issued an apology letter and a $300,000 payment to a trans transgender advisory group for the abrupt cancellation of a Department of Health contract a couple years ago. Those are the terms of a settlement agreement inked this week. According to the South Dakota Searchlight, which is using variety slang, inked in a federal discrimination lawsuit filed by the Transformation Project shortly after the cancellation. The group had a contract with the state paid for with federal funds to provide community health worker services for the LBGTQ plus community. Cancellation came a couple years ago, shortly after a conservative news outlet contacted the governor to ask why the state had signed the $136,000 contract. The Transformation Project's lawsuit cited governor's public comments on transgender people and her response to the conservative outlet, which had uh, focused on this, made through her, the governor's spokesperson, Ian Fury. Ian Fury, ladies and gentlemen, as proof the decision was discriminatory in nature. The Apologies of the Week, copyrighted feature in this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a few notes on Musk Love. The Chancellor of the Delaware Court of Chancery. Uh, Delaware, of course, is where most American businesses are incorporated. The Chancellor, who's actually a judge, has uh, ruled that Musk's record-breaking $55.8 billion pay package from Tesla in 2018 is null and void and over a year after the trial's end. Stock options he received must be renegotiated transparently to ensure fairness for shareholders. Quote, never incorporate in Delaware, unquote, Musk posting on X before adding, he recommends Nevada or Texas. Quote, if you prefer shareholders to decide matters, unquote. He then put the issue to a user poll in which he asked whether Tesla should move its state of incorporation to Texas. That's where its headquarters are already situated and where taxes are low. More than 750,000 accounts cast a vote. 
in support of the idea. If Musk follows through, it wouldn't be the first time he's taken such a measure. After the same judge compelled him to fulfill an obligation to buy Twitter, he was trying to get out of the agreement after he uh, thought twice, he incorporated the social media site's parent company in Nevada. His uh, headquarters is only located in Texas because he moved from California after repeated clashes with health officials that barred him from requiring shop workers to build cars during the pandemic lockdowns. Back in California, mere days after 25 California district attorneys sued Tesla for illegally disposing of hazardous waste at facilities around California before they left, Tesla has settled and agreed to pay $1.5 million for dumping deadly detritus around the state. That's a report from the Register. According to the uh, San Francisco DA, Tesla illegally disposed of waste generated in the manufacturing and servicing of Tesla vehicles that included lubricating oils, brake cleaners, lead acid, batteries, antifreeze, weld spatter waste, cleaning solvents, and other harmful materials in violation of California law. Well, of course he left. And U.S. safety officials say they've uncovered another problem in cars made by Tesla. Brake warning lights are too small. The carmaker has issued a software update to make the font bigger in a recall. Elon doesn't like that word. Affecting nearly 2.2 million cars. Because they'll do it as an uh, electronic update. You won't have to bring your car in. That is to say, I won't. News of Musk Love.
rima escapulida Não morro Faço samba mesmo assim Não vou chorar A dor dos outros Vim pra sambar Meu samba torto Não vou chorar Santa Monica, this is Le Show. I think uh, most of us know what an elephant looks like. Uh, I sure hope so. They're fading away, so hurry. But um, apparently something that doesn't know what an elephant looks like is chat GPT. Um, a friend of this show is back to talk about that and a new word he made up dis what's the rest of that discomprehension Gary Marcus you are emeritus professor at NYU Is that, are you still emeritus uh, once emeritus always emeritus huh. for life you seem to be too young to be emeritus but that's their business and um, author of reboot, uh, co-author of rebooting AI which is um uh, still one of the most uh, remarkable books on the subject of artificial intelligence. And um, Gary writes a, a column, and in the most, or one of the most recent editions of the column, uh, he discussed elephants and how to hide them. Welcome back, Gary. Thanks for having me. The, the column, by the way, is called uh, Marcus on AI, and you can find it at garymarcus.substack.com, and we'll tell you what it says. Okay. Um, so... Somebody, not you, um, tried to get chat GPT-4, or is that right? Is that the right number? I guess we're up to four turbo, but there's so many different uh, pieces of it. The important part is there's a version of chat GPT now that draws pictures, and we're talking about some of the pictures that it drew. Ah. And uh, so the prompts were fairly detailed. It was not just draw an elephant at the beach they were they had uh, some subtleties and and um, details to them share that with us would you well basically someone was playing a version of where's waldo um as you probably know when you play where's waldo you have some complicated picture and waldo hides in the middle of it and what was hilarious about this is they said you know camouflage the elephant on a beach and the thing drew this enormous elephant right in the middle of the beach, which you could not possibly miss. They, they, um, they used the word hidden, right? I guess there were a couple of different tries, um, but uh, at least in one of them, they did in fact use the word hidden and they used camouflage. They tried it in various ways. I wrote about it in my Substack. after that. Um, my friend Ernie Davis did some more variations I can tell you about. But in all of them, it was basically trying to get the machine to hide the elephant and it, it just couldn't it turns out there are ways to do it 
um, if you like really work at it, if you work at what we call prompting, like if you try 20 times, you know, you might eventually get there. But if you just ask in a straightforward way, show me a scene with an elephant hidden on a beach, it just completely fails. When you say it completely fails, you have, and you shared three of the results uh, with us on your column, um, a huge elephant, an elephant which in the third iteration is about 10 times the normal size of an elephant. So A, it didn't understand hidden, and B, it didn't seem to understand the proportions in reality uh, between... That's right. And, and, and my friend Ernie Davis um, and collaborator Ernie Davis, co-author on the book Rebooting AI, um, pursued that some more. So after, like, can you make an elephant even more hidden um, would fail completely, he started looking at the size thing, and he says, well, you know, your elephant is about 10 times the size of a person, and an actual elephant mm -hmm. is twice the size of a person. Can you try again? And it made another elephant that was 10 times the size of everybody else on the beach. Mm -hmm. It just really did not understand scale. It didn't understand camouflage. I think in all of these, the best that, that anybody got was, can you make the elephant even more hidden? Somebody tried and they put the elephant like a little bit underwater. <laughs> this thing was such a huge elephant and it was right at the edge of the beach. Like it didn't even go up to um, the elephant's ears. And so it still wasn't hidden. I mean, these things are actually pretty comical. Like it's really worth looking at them. I'll, I'll give you what one of the prompts was. Generate an image of people having fun at the beach and subtly include a single elephant somewhere in the image where it's very hard to see without extending searching it should be camouflaged by the other elements of the image <laughs> and then the elephant is at least 100 feet tall but all the you know people on the beach look minuscule in comparison and then chat gpt with its usual confidence says that it succeeded it says the image has been generated depicting a lively beach scene with people enjoying various activities an elephant is subtly included in the image camouflaged among the elephants so can you spot it and it's like you couldn't help but spot it you would have to be blind not to see it. So, also, there's this famous saying frequently wrong, never in doubt mm -hmm. from the military, and it absolutely applies to ChatGPT. What is it that ChatGPT is not getting about the, those prompts? Well, the thing is, we have as um, naive humans who, who don't understand these systems a kind of imagination that these systems are intelligent beings like us. I mean, we don't really have in our evolutionary history any experience of talking to chatbots, right? And so mm -hmm. most people don't really know how to think about it, and they kind of attribute to the machine some intelligence, like that it's actually understanding the words that you're using and so forth. But that's not really true. Um, technically, what they're doing is they have um, a space of images, and they have a space of words correlated with it, but they don't really understand the words. They don't really understand even the word elephant, it just so happens that when the word elephant is used, that that's correlated in the space with a bunch of sample elephants. But when you get to something more subtle like camouflaged, well, there's no picture exactly of camouflage. It doesn't really understand what that means. And, you know, basically what it's getting out of it is like elephant on beach and it gets that part, but it doesn't understand these subtle concepts about subtle or <laughs> the word subtle, ironically enough, um, or the word camouflage and so forth. But it also, another it also doesn't understand the relationship in scale between elephant and people on beach. It absolutely doesn't. And then there's another example I just wrote about yesterday. 
Um, let me see if I can pull it up and I'll, I'll read it to you, which is like yet another variation on this theme. Um, this time, no elephants, but somebody um, on Facebook posted something um, in which they said um, they want an old wise man. And of course, it made it a white guy. Old white wise man hugging a unicorn, soft light, warm and golden tones, tenderness, oh, yes, gentleness in the style of man- Michelangelo. Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, it doesn't really look like Michelangelo. It's not a sculpture. It doesn't look like the Sistine Chapel. But never mind that. It's more like a Hallmark card, I suppose. But even if you ignore that part, <laughs> you've got this guy hugging this unicorn, but the, the, the horn of the the horse slash unicorn goes straight through the guy's head. Yes. <laughs> like, um, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, and there's no blood, of course. And the guy looks perfectly happy hugging. You know, he's been impaled by the unicorn. <laughs> but the system doesn't have the common sense of the world to understand that, wow, that would really hurt. Him. Yeah. <laughs> and, he then, and then I posted, oh, go ahead. No, he wouldn't be hugging a unicorn that was jutting its I mean, horn he, through his head. He, Exactly. He'd be dead, actually, because yeah. it goes straight, straight <laughs> through his skull. And then, you know, I posted this because I thought it was kind of silly on, on Twitter, and people start pointing out other problems with it. Like, one of his arms is normal, but the other is, like, so big that it can wrap around this giant horse, so the arms don't match. And then one of them has, like, these fat sausage fingers, and the other one doesn't. Like, you know, we know that people's hands are symmetrical. One of them has six fingers, and yeah. the other has five. Yeah. Like, all these things that, like, we know about the world, the system doesn't really know that. It's just correlating little bits of texture of guy's beard and stuff like that. Um, understand like everything locally. Like if you look at any little piece of it, it all makes sense, except maybe the horn coming out of the guy's <laughs> ear, which, which really doesn't make sense. Um, but most of it locally, like one of the hands is fine, the other hand is fine. It's only when you like try to connect the guy's hand with the guy's shoulders, and you're like, oh my god, that just really doesn't make any sense. This the six the six fingers is sort of an error too. Yeah, but even like you have to look at it carefully. If you just looked at it a little bit, you might not notice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like patches of texture and little patches of texture work okay but you have to look across it to see that something is not quite right so like little pieces are okay it's the same thing with the text things you know often like one sentence will be perfectly fine it's only over a long period of time that you realize hey the system doesn't actually really know what it's talking about if i could generalize uh and it's my show so i guess i can most of the criticism of AI at this moment in time is uh, about how powerful it is, how scary it is, how it's going to destroy humanity. And um, your critique, and it has been since I've been reading you and knowing you, is it ain't all it's cracked up to be. Exactly. I haven't changed on that. I still think that it's really not all that bright. It's unreliable. You can't trust it. It doesn't, it's not grounded in facts. And for me, the immediate fear is that people will give it too much power. I'll tell you something crazy. There was a bill that somebody put forward in that was actually bipartisan, three, one senator and three congressmen put put a bill last year that you couldn't use this stuff on nuclear weapons. That should be like a complete no-brainer that something that is this hallucinatory should not, you know, make decisions about nuclear weapons. And it didn't pass. Mm. And like so at the moment, it is actually legal to put this stuff in nuclear weapons, which would be an insane idea because it is 
so unreliable. Like it's okay for some things, but it really doesn't deal well with unusual circumstances, with novelty. It's very much bound by what's in its training set. And so like you put in nuclear weapons and some new scenario in the world happens that like might do something absolutely crazy, might kill us all. And hopefully nobody will be dumb enough to do that particular thing. But there's so much hype about these systems, making them sound so much more clever than they actually are, that yes, I have to take the piss out of them to try to get people to understand that no, these are still toys and we shouldn't be putting these toys everywhere. Shouldn't be putting them in cars. We shouldn't be putting them in weapons. We should actually be working harder to get to AI that we can trust. The other thing is everybody thinks like I hate AI because I criticize the current AI, but it's actually the opposite. I love AI. I want to see it work. I think you can like totally revolutionize science and medicine, but not if we keep playing with the toys that we have right now and not understanding that they are toys. What would be necessary to get to an AI that you would trust? Um, I mean, I guess you could answer that in, in two different ways. One is I could give you a set of criteria. So trustworthy would be like it doesn't make stuff up. Like we didn't talk today, but I think we've talked before um, about hallucinations. Like <laughs> a hilarious one recently after the last time we talked, I think, is somebody um, asked it to describe my career and mention um, influence that I get from pet. And so it just made up this whole thing about how I had a pet chicken named Henrietta. Like it didn't like fact check that and, you know, it's hilarious, but, but it was, you know, written as, you know, dead on fact, like an encyclopedia entry. Gary draws inspiration from his pet chicken, Henrietta, um, with piquant observations about Henrietta's blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, a good system that you trust wouldn't do that. It would say, I don't see anything in my database about Gary having a pet. I'm not going to make that up. You know, maybe it's true, but I don't know. You can go ask him yourself. Um, you know, it shouldn't just make stuff up and make it up in that frequently wrong, never in doubt kind of way where it just says it with absolute confidence. That's one thing. Another thing is like bias is a real problem. Like it shouldn't be that every time you ask for um, somebody wise that you get an old white guy. That's just not fair. Um, and so there are a lot of problems where at least we know what the criteria would be trustworthy. It would be fair. It wouldn't be biased. Um, another thing is they're very erratic. So any given question might be right on Tuesday and wrong on Thursday and people started to track this. It's just, they're not reliable. And like nobody would accept that in a calculator. Why would you accept that in AI that you're going to you know, put in your weapon systems? That's just insane. So one way to look at it would be like, what are the criteria? So, you know, reliability, trustworthy, stability, um, those and so forth would be the obvious criteria. How do we actually build that? Well, I think one of the things we need to do is to put together two traditions of AI. So right now, the one that's dominant is what we call neural networks and very good at statistical correlation. And there's an older tradition excuse me, called symbol manipulation, which we've talked about once or twice before, which is about having verbal knowledge and making inferences over that knowledge, having explicit abstractions. Um, I wrote a book called The Algebraic Mind, and the po point is that some of what we do is a little bit like algebra. We have these abstractions that we can manipulate. Like, you know, in algebra, you say y equals x plus 2. If I tell you what x is, you can automatically calculate what y is. So we call that kind of stuff computer programming in part and symbolic AI. And it's out of fashion, but it needs to be brought back in the mix. Um, that's a way of representing facts and reasoning over them. That has to be part of what we do. We can't just do all this statistical correlation and then you wind up with a unicorn, you know, with its uh, horn sticking through somebody's head and the system is none the wiser. But you do like eggs. 
I do like what? Eggs. Eggs? Yeah. Eating eggs? No, you know, um, from, from Henrietta. Ah, <laughs> well, it does make me think about the, um, the Woody Allen line about we need the eggs. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but does either of those modes get to what you've taught me is the major uh, sticking point with all this, which is this: these systems have no knowledge of the existence of this world. I can see a path there, but I would say the answer is no, and that that's a good question. And that's another way of thinking about the problem is that classical AI has some way of representing what we call world models. Current neural networks don't have any way of doing it. Neither of them really do it that well. If you imagine, for example, that one of our goals is to build a domestic robot, like Rosie the robot that would help you with all your household things, that robot has to really understand what's in there in the world. It can't just kind of like consult a video library, like what do I do now? It really needs to have a model in its you know, silicon brain of what's going on in the world. And we don't really know how to do that systematically and reliably updating it regularly. The way that, for example, my nine, 11 year old children are able to do perfectly well. They, you know, they walk around a space and they figure out what the objects are in that space and what they can do with them, how to avoid them, um, how to use them as tools, et cetera. We don't have an AI that's as anywhere near as fluid as, as you know, my children or anybody else's children. Yeah, this is this is a very smart friend that's deaf and blind, right? Um, I, I don't actually think that's fair to deaf or blind people. So, <laughs> deaf, de, deaf or blind people, um, you know, there's actually been nice systematic scientific work, some by my late friend Lila Gleitman. Um, deaf and blind people have very complicated, sophisticated models of the world. They have fewer perceptual tools to get there, but that's, they're still thinking about the world in terms of enduring objects, in terms of people, um, in terms of you know what agents and entities can do in the world, what those objects are good for. It's a very different kind of thought than these systems that are basically just gigantic correlation machines that don't really do that kind of analysis. Hmm. So, in a pinch, you take Helen Keller over ChatGPT. Absolutely. I mean, I guess it does depend on what you want to do. Um, but, you know, Helen Keller wrote sophisticated, creative things and thought about the world in original ways. And ChatGPT doesn't do that. If you just want a system to add up a bunch of... Um, uh, observations about the world and sort of tell you what's statistically average, maybe ChatGPT would be better. Um, and if you wanted to remember some arbitrary fact, probably ChatGPT would be better. But if you wanted an agent that understood the world and could say original things, then absolutely, Helen Keller for sure. Hmm. That's got to piss some people in the, in the, in the GPT world off. Um, Call them like I see them. Yeah. So what would what would crack the code in your opinion to get an elephant hidden on a beach 
where I mean, uh, that's actually a hard one, that specific problem. Um, but, you know, you can put a bunch of trees there. You should make the elephant a little bit smaller. You could put a tent, right? I mean, there are lots of, right? I mean, a creative human artist would, would get the job done. The question is, how do you get an AI to understand that? I don't think we're anywhere close, is my honest answer. Like, yeah, they'll probably patch up that particular problem because they will work on it. We will find other similar problems that basically... Um, rely on the fact that these systems just don't have a general purpose understanding of the world. I don't think they're close to that. I think what's really going to take us there is actually like a, a realization among the field that we've taken the current technology about as far as it can go and we need to do something else. Right now, I think there's kind of an ego problem. I think people are so excited with the toys that they have that they think they can do anything with it. And it's not really true. There's starting to be a little bit of that realization. Um, you know, sometimes people get attached to a wrong idea and it's hard to get them away from it. In the 1920s, everybody thought genes were made of proteins. It took really a long time to shake them out of that and realize that genes were actually made of an asset. And it took some very careful experiments that I think people, you know, didn't necessarily even swallow immediately in the 1940s to, to get them off of a kind of E-Day fix and, and to a different idea like people just get stuck in in their own head I mean, we talk in psychology my other field about confirmation bias like if you believe that these things are magic then you notice all the things that appear to show that they're magic and you get pissed off at people like marcus who go around saying yeah but there are these problems they're like ah, i don't i don't need to worry about those problems and that you know actually retards progress you, you can't make progress in science until you actually face the facts and we're in an era where there's so much money at stake and so much enthusiasm or whatever that people are not facing the facts well and you just mentioned you just mentioned the magic word money well, I mean, that is driving a lot of this, right? I mean, you have these startups that are you know, getting billion-dollar valuations after less than a year of um, operating. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that, right? So you know, the, the money is very appealing. And you know, Microsoft has gone up, you know, I guess, a trillion dollars in its valuation over the last year. So it's very seductive. I'm not sure that's going to last. In fact, I've predicted that the most recent valuation of, of OpenAI is going to look a little bit like what happened with WeWork. So WeWork, you know, it was a legitimate company, but it suddenly was valued at $45 billion. And that didn't make any sense from based on the economics of what they were doing. It was all just pixie dust and then it, it collapsed. Um, I don't think OpenAI makes sense at 86 six billion dollars i think they're going to owe a lot of money one way or another either to lawyers or in licensing agreements because their raw materials are copyrighted materials that they're using probably illegally um the systems to make them work better they need to make them bigger and they already require a lot of money some people are speculating that gpt5 will cost a billion dollars just to train and then it's not totally clear what the business model is yet so like it's just not clear to me that it's actually going to be worth $86 billion. And if suddenly somebody says, well, no, it's not. I mean, we know how these kind of panics go. And then suddenly people are unloading the stock and people don't want to work at the companies anymore. And like things can go south very fast as they, as they did with WeWork. Um, I don't think that OpenAI is in any danger of going out of business because it's backed by Microsoft. Microsoft has you know, tons of money on hand, but um this whole kind of zeitgeist of, wow, any of these companies is worth tens of billions of dollars no matter what, I think that might go away. Let me ask you one more question, which relates to uh, tangentially the New York Times suit. 
about uh, copyrighted material being used without payment or permission by uh, the training sets. How frequently in the current usage does any of these systems have to be retrained? Well, they try to do it very infrequently. So, you know, GPT-4 was trained something like a year and a half ago. There's a GPT-4 Turbo that I think was supposed to be maybe GPT-5, but I don't know. It was maybe like eight months later or something like that. But like we're talking about like a billion dollars to train, you know, a system of that magnitude. That's the estimate. Nobody knows for sure. Um, and it also takes months. So you can't do it every day. So another issue with these systems is you train them and then you have to build something else on to deal with the, the fact that the world itself is changing every day. Yeah, I was going to say, how frequently do, do humans retrain? Well, humans retrain constantly, yeah. right? So, you know, every day you learn new things and, mm -hmm. and you integrate that. I mean, obviously we, we have... You know, some elderly people that have trouble or people with brain damage or whatever. But ordinary people are basically, you know, absorbing new information every day. Um, they're not doing it in the same way as neural networks. And neural networks, it's a misnomer. It makes them, these systems sound like they work like people, but they don't really. So, you know, human being hears that there is a massacre in Israel, and they know that immediately. They don't have to retrain for months in order to absorb that information. Um, you know, you, you hear something surprising or upsetting or whatever, and you instantly integrate that and you start thinking about the implications and, and you know, you wonder what will happen next and so forth. It's, it's a different mechanism than we find in these systems. So these systems, you know, get trained every few months or once a year or whatever, and then you have to kind of bolt other things on to try to get them to deal with the news. And it hasn't really worked that well. So there have been systems like BARD, um, or, or Microsoft Bing that have a large language model underneath and they attach some Googles on top to try to help it stamp with the news. But they, they're really pretty dicey. So well, one thing we need to understand about current AI is it's living in the past. It is, and that has a lot of implications. But one of them is about bias. So, for example, if most of the pictures for wise men that it finds labeled on the internet uh, or wise people are white men, then it's likely to do that because there's some historical database of that. Now, we know better as a society now to realize that not everybody who's wise is white or male or old or whatever. Um, and that, in fact, that's just a kind of Western stereotype. And you would like your system to be able to kind of build us towards a better, less discriminatory world. But these systems, all they do is perpetuate whatever random pieces of data they have from the past. And so that's really problematic. Hmm. Uh, optimistic or pessimistic, you? Uh, about what? <laughs> <laughs> the future of AI. I'm, I'm short-term pessimistic, long-term optimistic. I think we're doing the wrong thing now. Um, the governments of the world are suddenly realizing that maybe we do need some regulation around this. Um, I think that, you know, Bill Gates recognized that GPT-5 might not be that much better than GPT-4. If people recognize that, eventually we'll move on. You know, science and engineering is not quite the same, but science is self-correcting. Like, 
you come up with a bad hypothesis, eventually people figure it out and they fix it. And I think that's what will happen here. I just don't know if it's going to take another two years, another 10 years, another 20 years. But in the end of the day, these systems don't work as well as people want them to. They have these hallucination problems, for example, where they make stuff up. And there's enough money, you know, floating around that people are going to figure it out. It's just a question of when. But I think in the long term, we will look back at, you know, 2024 AI, the way that I look back at Motorola flip phones, I'm like, those were cute, but you know, I would rather have an iPhone. People are going to say, well, that AI was interesting. didn't really work very well, but at least they realized how important AI was. And I'm glad that in you know, 2035, they actually figured it out and this stuff is great now. As a technologist, if, unless you reject that self-description, why haven't we yet gotten to the point where all our wonderful machines are self-diagnosing? That's, that's a hard thing. I mean, there, there's there's limited self-diagnosis already and has been for a long time. Like when your your system boots up, there's a BIOS and it checks the memory or may do stuff like that, um, depending on how it's configured. So there's some ability to self-diagnose but there's not a sophisticated kind of meta understanding of what a system should be doing such that these systems can really do it. So they can have, you know, prescribed set of automatic diagnostics. They do. Um, but the world, real world is complicated and very few machines understand. Actually, you, know, you and I had some audiovisual problems the other day. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think maybe because your internet was down. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it makes me think of a, a famous joke in the field, which is like people will give a PowerPoint talk and the slides aren't working. And they'll, they'll always say AI before AV. <laughs> like, um, jo you know, jo joking that artificial intelligence is really hard, but getting some of this other stuff diagnosed is even harder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, a machine that could not just sit there dumbly and wait for you to figure out that the thing, you know, whatever is not working. Um, the amount of time and wasted effort it would save is probably more than any other technological change could accomplish in the next 20 years. Eventually, we will have machines that are flexible enough that you can you know, do essentially anything with it. You can say, like, why is my internet not working? And they'll just go figure it out for you. Mm -hmm. um, we're just not there yet. You know, we'll get there, but we're not. All right. And you should put a T-shirt out with that on it. I, you know, the line I often think of is, is from the um, Talking Heads. I'm still waiting. <laughs> Indeed. Gary uh, Marcus, uh, I almost said another name, but Gary Marcus, thank you so much for uh, wading through all the technological mishigas that we had to go through to get this conversation happening. Well, it's always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks.
that's it for this week, ladies and gentlemen. The show returns next week, same time, same radio station, or whenever you want it, on your audio device of choice. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates from WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless.